Welcome to this episode of the Champlain Society podcast. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. The objective of this installment is to dissect a top-secret telegram Lester Pearson dictated on July 28, 1956, a telegram that changed global affairs. In studio with me is Anthony Anderson, author of a new book on the events surrounding the telegram. The title is The Diplomat, Lester Pearson, and the Suez Crisis, and it's published by Goose Lane. Anthony, welcome to the mic, and congratulations on your book. The top song that week in uh, July of 1956 was Elvis Presley, I Want You, I Need You, I Love You. It seems as though Pearson was looking for some people, uh, people that he wanted, people he needed, uh, maybe people he loved. What was the purpose of that telegram? Well, the Suez crisis had just erupted two days before when the president of Egypt, Jamal Abdel Nasser, had nationalized the Suez Canal. Um, this was a this was an imperial waterway that connected the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. It was a hundred miles long. The French built it in the 1860s. Britain bought a stake in the canal. They owned almost half of the canal. And uh, it was a shortcut. It was a, a route to move their ships all over the empire. And more than that, it became an obsession for them. They were obsessed with controlling that canal because they thought whoever controlled the canal would eventually control the empire. So in Egypt, as they saw it, took back the canal and began to run it, this was like a declaration of war, and the British, in many ways, lost their minds. And Pearson, you know, representing Canada, we're a member of NATO, we're a member of the Commonwealth. We want to bring the British back to their senses. So let's go to the document and uh, have you read the telegram that Lester Pearson wrote to Norman Robertson, who was the High Commissioner the Canadian ambassador, as we, uh, we call him, to London. Quite apart from the legal and technical aspects of the Egyptian action, we are aware that it has broad implications of a potentially explosive character. We believe that you have adopted a prudent line in urging upon the United Kingdom the wisdom of proceeding in a manner designed to obtain the greatest amount of international support. The Prime Minister today received a message from Sir Anthony Eden stating the necessity of taking a firm stand and of endeavouring to get a permanent arrangement to put the canal under proper international control. I am deeply concerned at the implications of some parts of Eden's message, especially as I doubt very much whether he will receive strong support from Washington in the firm line which he proposes to follow. Surely the UK government will not do anything which would commit them to strong action against Egypt until they know that the US will back them. I'm also worried as to the meaning to be given Eden's words. Quote, We believe that we should seize this opportunity of putting the canal under proper international control and permanent arrangement. End quote. Surely with the Russians dissenting and supporting Egypt... The UK do not think that this can be done, as they profess to hope, by, quote, political pressure alone. There remains force, which they visualize as a last resort. But is it not clear that to be effective, 
enough force would have to be used to destroy the Nasser government and take over Egypt. Any effort to use force, in fact, would in all likelihood result in an appeal by Egypt to the UN. That would be bringing the UN into the matter with a vengeance and by the wrong party. I'm glad that you have stressed the importance of bringing the UN into the question. This may not be practicable, but it certainly shouldn't be dismissed without the most careful consideration. It might well be argued that if an international dispute is of such a character that force is envisaged, it is also one that should be brought before the UN in order to try to avoid the use of such force. These observations, which are sent to you in haste, may all seem pretty negative, but at the moment I'm less worried about being negative than about being rashly positive. Thanks, Anthony. <clears throat> so, um, tell us about Lester B. Pearson. At this uh, end of July, 1956, he's 59 years old. What's what's your impression of him? Well, in 1956, Lester Pearson was the Secretary of State for External Affairs. That's our foreign minister. He'd been at the department for almost 30 years. He had served on various UN agencies, committees. He'd been the president of the UN General Assembly for two years. He had drafted, uh, you know, documents, policy memoranda, dealt with ministers. He was probably the most connected diplomat we've ever had and are likely to ever have again. He knew everyone that mattered. He knew everyone in London, Washington, Paris, you name it. He was connected. He was probably one of the most famous Canadians in the world. And he's writing to Norman Robertson in London. Tell us about him. Norman Robertson is a is um, considered like one of the great civil servants. Um, he, like Pearson, had gone to a British university, supremely intellectual, scholarly, thoughtful, moderate. Um, he had been Mackenzie King's right hand at a certain point during the war, helping King to run the government. Uh, just one of those great minds that uh, you know we were lucky to have in the government, and he is now the High Commissioner in London. He is the link between Ottawa and London, and he has the very, very difficult task of taking Canada's displeasure to London. So, you're saying Nasser nationalized on the 26th. Now, we don't have the internet in 1956, <laughs> right? So, tell yeah. me. So, this, these things take time. These things take time. So, Nasser national, announces in Egypt, in Cairo, that he will nationalize the Suez Canal. What's the reaction on the 27th? What is the world saying on the 27th of well, July? It's really interesting because um, I think the geographic distance from, it was actually Alexandria, or the geographic distance from Egypt allowed us to keep a cool head. We had no stake in the Middle East, minimal trade, no military stake, so we could be detached. For the British, it was like a declaration of war. So when the word slowly seeped out from Egypt into the world, there was jubilation in the Middle East mm -hmm. because here was a local sun striking back at the great imperial power. Yes. Um, when word got to London, Prime Minister Anthony Eden was hosting a dinner for the young King Faisal II of Iraq. And here he was trying to promote ties between Britain and Iraq and the rest of the Middle East, and he is insulted in front of the entire world. Because how dare a mere colonel running Egypt tell him, Anthony Eden, that England cannot control the canal anymore? So I think every 
almost every single major British diplomat government person knows where they were on the night of July 26th. They all know. It's like Kennedy being shot. It's like mm. the trade towers going down. They know where they were the night those words came through. What's curious is I, have, I couldn't find any account of Lester Pearson's first reactions to the mm. canal nationalization. Nothing. In no Canadian diplomat's writings, personal letters, memoranda, it's almost as if it didn't happen. And the next day in Parliament, they're talking about the most mundane matters. Like, but clearly, something's on his mind. Something's on. I mean, he 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 delivered. He um, late in the afternoon of the twenty seventh, he issues a very small statement, which is um, deceptive in its simplicity, in which he more or less says, Canada, as a trading nation, is concerned about the canal, but we don't want to see any strong force used to resolve the situation. And it's really unclear whether he's talking to Britain or to Egypt. What comes out of this document is that he sees that there's going to be a showdown somewhere in the UN. He knows that this can't go to the um, the Security Council because Russia, which supports Nasser, will vote it down. The Americans, he always he, the Americans he always already knows are not happy with what's going to happen. So this this document is important because it shows how prescient. Um, Pearson really was. He saw the um, the chessboard playing out, and and is this where he starts to actually put together an idea of of of, an, of a UN force? I mean, what's your sense of that? No, this is too early for that. Um, I think you're quite right, and it's a beautiful way of putting it. He does see the entire chessboard. He has been trying to restrain Britain for months. The Americans have been trying to restrain Britain. I mean. Antony Eden, the British Prime Minister, is a curious character, very gifted diplomat, but probably on a lot of amphetamines at the time. He's had a terrible stomach operation, he has fevers, he's ill, he's not at his best, and he's taking sleeping pills to get him through the evening, and then uppers to get him through the day. So he's not at his best. So Pearson knows who he's dealing with. He's, Pearson has also met Nasser. Mm. And um, although Nasser is a military dictator, Pearson does not see him as a Russian puppet. He sees him as a man of his people, someone genuinely trying to improve the lives of ordinary Egyptians. But Pearson is a very practiced diplomat. He's been around for 30 years. He's lived through two world wars, smaller wars. He's seen the UN come to life. He saw the disappearance of the League of Nations. So he has a sense of where events are going to unfold. Is he afraid the Brits are going to do something rash? Oh, yeah. He's afraid uh, they're going to invade? He's, he is a loyal ally, and he does not want to see a key player in NATO harm itself, mm. inflict a terrible wound. Um, and he's not – it's funny. He, there, throughout the whole crisis, he – there, there's no moral condemnation on his part. There's no moral outrage. He, he's very professional. He is just talking about what is the wisdom or the unwisdom of intervention. So what happens after this telegram is sent to Norman Robertson? Uh, do we know what Robertson did? What was his job? <laughs> once, once he gets this from his old, from his old pal, yeah. uh, who's now into, who's now a part of the government. I mean, Lester Pearson. Let's remind our listeners: uh, was a long time a public servant and made the jump to um, to the cabinet, um, and was part of the Louis Saint government. So Norman Robertson gets this. Uh, I was going to say this email. It's not an email. He gets a telegram. <laughs> he gets a telegram. And what's his uh, reaction? What's his mandate? What does he have to do? Robertson and Pearson 
were on the same page from day one. They had a, a real sense of how weak Britain was at the time. They wanted to contain Britain, to constrain Britain. And uh, Robertson's task was thankless. He would have to go multiple times down to Whitehall and urge the foreign secretary or the Commonwealth secretary to keep a stiff upper lip. Take the insult and be insulted. Let Nasser, let Nasser take the canal and say nothing. But the British couldn't. They'd already given up um, Abadan. The, um, the British had already given up the Abadan oil refinery. They'd given up India, Palestine, you name it. This so was this was end. one of the last insults. Yes. What happens next? What happens after all this? Well, Robertson and Pearson spend about four months pleading quietly with Britain and to some degree publicly do not get involved militarily. Let Nasser take the canal. And Nasser had a very weak military hand to play. He was facing off against Britain, which was still one of the world's great military powers at that point. And Nasser very shrewdly ran the canal like a business. He just let the ships flow through. He didn't block oil shipments to Britain. So he could say to the world, look, it's business as usual. There's no need for a military intervention. This infuriated Eden because Eden needed a, he needed a reason to go in and strike. So this is where we get to one of the great conspiracies of the 20th century. And for once, the conspiracy theorists are right. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> Britain, France, and Israel agree to invade together. Israel goes in first. On October 29th, they invade the Sinai. And it appears that they're moving towards the Suez Canal. So Britain and France stand up and say, oh my God, the Israelis are going to take the canal. There's going to be war. We... Britain and France have to act like peacekeepers. We need to land our troops, separate these belligerents, and trust us everything will be fine after that. And I don't think anyone bought that. From your perspective, um, so this was this was really Canada's shining moment in 20th century diplomacy. Uh, from this will be born the idea of mm -hmm. the United Nations getting involved in forcing a peacekeeping force for the first time. We'll have the the blue helmets. Yeah. Uh, I actually don't know if they were actually wore blue helmets that time. Some of them were. Some of them were blue. They got okay. helmet liners and dipped them in blue paint. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but this is the 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 birth of the uh, of the blue helmets. The first time they are deployed, it's a United Nations um, force uh, taking over the Sinai, and and the rest is history. Looking back, uh, looking back then, sixty years later, Anthony, what what's why is this document so important in your eyes? It's such a beautifully written document, and when I was researching Pearson, it was a joy to go through his memoranda, his policy statements, his speeches, because he was a, a very thoughtful guy. He came across like a hockey player sometimes. He was a very good hockey player, and he liked to have this. Ah, shucks, I'm just Mike Pearson, but this was a very, very smart pragmatic professional diplomat so it's just stunning to see two days after the canal the canal is nationalized that he is mapping out what is going to happen to britain it's going to get into real trouble at the un it's going to be dragged to the un by egypt and um there's an there's a line in there that i, I found really troubling for a while where pearson says surely the uk won't do anything unless it unless it has the backing of, unless it has the backing of the u.s and I think buried in that suggestion or that concern is the faint possibility that if the British had got support from Washington to invade, that Pearson may have supported that too. Mm. Because if you're going to act in the world, you need to have your 
resident superpower on side. You need to be effective. Doesn't mean you have to be good, just, evil. You have to be effective in promoting your policy. So there was something about Pearson where he was kind of cold-blooded. So Anthony, did Canada invent peacekeeping? It looked like it, and we believed it for a long time because there was Lester Pearson at the UN. He proposes it. The UN adopts it, and there's no question that the General Assembly would not have voted on that motion if it hadn't been for Pearson working the hallways, the delegates' lounge, the members, and rallying the UN to take a, a chance on this peace effort. No question. However, Pearson wasn't working in a vacuum. Uh, the UN had sent unarmed observers into various countries around the world. They, they literally had, you know, a pad and a pencil. They noted border incursions. They couldn't interrupt. They couldn't intervene. They would report back to the Security Council. Um, sometimes they had an effect, but often they were simply observers on the sideline. And uh, Pearson knew that. So when he went to the UN, he had presidents to build on. What he did do was take it to the next level and send a fully armed force, much larger numbers, to act as a buffer zone. And in this instance, the peace, in this instance, the peace force in Egypt was successful because they landed in 1957, and they kept the peace until 1967. So that was quite a triumph. When uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser eventually kicked out Canada, yeah. did he not? Yeah, he did. He got fed up with them, <laughs> threw us out, and all the other countries that were involved out. And Pearson, who had a very long view of history, realized that there would be ups and downs, and he didn't. Uh, he wasn't particularly worried by that. He knew, you know, the UN had had failed because we'd been thrown out. They'd been thrown out, but he knew there'd be other triumphs. Um, and of course, when we are thrown out in 1967, Lester Pearson is the Prime Minister of yeah. Canada. Yeah. He did have a view of history. Uh, he was a historian. Mm-hmm. He had read history uh, at the University of Toronto and then, uh, as Oxford. you say, at Oxford. Yeah. Do you think, tell us more about uh, the historian as a decision maker. What's your, what's your impression? Um, was he, to what degree do you think he was informed by his reading of history? I think he was deeply informed because he was not a politician. He was a diplomat. He was an historian. So I think he he was saved in so many instances or or, um, held up by this innate sense that, you know, triumph and disaster are fleeting. And you may win one headline today. You may score a point in the House of Commons today. You're going to be trounced tomorrow. But there is always another day. And especially when he was prime minister and he was up against Stephen Baker, who was an incredibly sharp swordsman in the house and could run circles around Pearson, Pearson knew that he would lose those daily battles, but that he would win the larger battle in history. The long view can be very comforting. Yeah. Pearson knew the Americans very well. He knew mm-hmm. the Brits very well. Um, this was a chosen moment for Canada to to get involved in. And uh, Lester Pearson was obviously a, a policy entrepreneur for the for the moment. He <laughs> right. was the uh, he was the man of the moment, and he uh, he effectively uh, got Canada's point of view uh, put across. Again, sixty years later, is there? We all, we all think of Suez as as this uh, bright moment in our history. Do you ever? Can you ever imagine Canada playing a role like that in global affairs ever again? The trouble with Suez is is that it's so mesmerizing. We kept thinking we would do that again and again. Every prime minister after Pearson, Diefenbaker, Trudeau, Chrétien, they all thought, "How? what can I do in the international sphere to get a Nobel Prize? And you see it in their writings. 
they are haunted by Suez. They want to be Mike Pearson. And there was only one Mike Pearson. And it was also a moment. We had a very credible military at the time. Pearson was connected. When he proposed sending a Canadian uh, Canadian troops to that first UN force, we actually had an aircraft carrier, our own <laughs> aircraft carrier. We did. <laughs> yeah. And we had our own regiment ready to go in three days. So we weren't just offering sermons. We weren't just offering unwanted advice from the sidelines. When we suggested a peacekeeping force, we had that aircraft carrier ready to go within days. We couldn't do that now. Thank you, Anthony. My pleasure. Happy to talk about Lester B. all the time. I want to remind our listeners that the document we've just discussed is available on the Champlain Society website. Please visit champlainsociety.ca. This is the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. My guest was Anthony Anderson, and this was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. It was produced by Sabrina Birch, Cindy Long, and Vince Piet. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.